few books are as fundamental to the Christian faith as the book of Exodus. Exodus not only teaches us about the redemption of God's people, Israel, but it also provides us with a paradigm for understanding God's future redemption of humanity. The people of Israel were physically enslaved in Egypt. Humanity today is spiritually enslaved to sin. We're all in need of redemption. God redeemed Israel, enabling them to cross over out of Egypt. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are all enabled to cross over into life from our sin. When we understand the book of Exodus, we understand God, his grace, and ultimately our redemption. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Vintage. If I've never met you before, my name is Dustin Turner. I serve as the lead pastor of Vintage Church. And if your first time has been in the last three weeks, there's a good chance you've never met me before. I've been on vacation, as Nick shared. Also, if you didn't know, Pastor Mark Anthony Thomas, this was his first Sunday back in four weeks. Can we welcome him back as well? He was on a tour with the band Tank and the Bangas, and so we're so thankful that he gets to be a part of that and uh, be also with us as well. If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 24. If you're new to the Bible, if you turn to Genesis, and then you turn over one more book to the book of Exodus, you will find it there. We're going to be in chapter 24. If you need a copy of God's Word, lift up your hand, and we have some Connect team members that would love to get you a copy of God's Word. Put your finger there, and we're going to be kind of flipping back as well as flipping forward. If you missed the last couple of weeks, you really need to go back and you need to watch or listen online. One of the things that I am beyond thankful for is to serve with a group of people who are so gifted and talented to serve the Lord. Pastor Weaver preached the last two Sundays, and then uh, last Sunday, Jordan Hill, one of our just vintage partners, came and delivered the word. Can we thank God for them? I just... I want to remind you, it is not a normal thing for a church our size to have so many gifted leaders and so many gifted communicators. And so I don't take it for granted that I'm able to step away and rest and spend time with my family and while I'm away, not worry about anything, knowing that the, the church is completely in capable hands. And so I'm just so thankful for you guys and the way that you lead and the way that you allow me as a leader here at Vintage to step away and be able to rest as well. So you can find everything there at the QR code and the link. And part of the reason I wanted you to turn to Exodus 24, we're going to read it in just a little bit, but I want you to do something if you will. If you have a copy of God's Word, I just want you to flip a few pages back to Exodus 19. And I want to remind you of where we have been, because this is important specifically to Exodus chapter 24. So we kind of begun this journey in Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, this is a turning point in the book of Exodus. Up to this point, the people of Israel have either been in slavery in Egypt, or they are walking out of Egypt. And in Exodus 19, there is a new setting. What's it called? It's in your Bible. It's probably a heading. Mount Sinai. So it's starting in chapter 19 
the Israelites are at a new place. They are at Mount Sinai. They are in the wilderness, and they are at what the Bible calls the mountain of God. And in Exodus 19, we learn about the Lord's presence on this mountain. And then in Exodus 20, we learn about what? What are they called? The Ten Commandments. And we learn about how God wants to set up his relationship with the people of Israel. The biblical term for this relationship is what? Covenant. It is a covenant, and we're going to talk about that. So Exodus 20, you get the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are not a bunch of rules that are arbitrary, but they are a set of words from the Lord that tell us what this covenant is supposed to be like, what our relationship is like. I've compared the Ten Commandments to marriage vows. If you're married, there's a good chance that you stood before your husband or your wife and you made vows, things that you were committing to to them and things they were committing to to you. Now, it might look like it gets a little weird after Exodus chapter 20. In, verse, or in chapters 21 and 22, there's all of these what you could call case studies where what God is doing is he's fleshing out the Ten Commandments. He's saying, look, at, listen, I told you to don't commit murder or do not envy or honor your father and mother. Let me give you some ways or examples of what this looks like. So we see that in Exodus 21 and into Exodus 22 and 23. And last week, Jordan came and he gave kind of an introduction to the land, and he talked about how God promised the Israelites that they were going to have the land and that they had to get the chaos, if you will, or the disorder out of the land so they could dwell in the land with the presence of the Lord. Then we're here to Exodus 24. But here's what I want you to do while I'm talking. Just for the next few moments, I want you to put your finger in Exodus 24, and I just want you to turn the page for the next several pages in the book of Exodus, because what you're going to see is what we're going to talk about next. In Exodus chapter 25, we learn about what's called the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting. And then we learn about it more in, verse, in chapter 26. We learn about the altar in chapter 27. We learn about the priests in chapter 28 and 29. The altar of incense in chapter 30. We learn about how they made all of this in 31. And then we get to the golden calf in chapter 32. Now, why do I share all of this with you? Why do we go back? Why do we go forward? Because Exodus chapter 24 is a hinge point in the book of Exodus. And it's important to understand everything that's happened up to this point, and it's important to understand everything that is going to follow from Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24 is a pivotal moment in the book of Exodus, but not only in the book of Exodus, it's a pivotal moment in the entirety of Scripture. Because we're going to see some of the themes in Exodus 24 carry over even into the New Testament as we talk about the covenant that God makes with his church through his son, Jesus. So let's take a look at this together. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Here is our big idea today. God's covenant. Everybody say covenant. Covenant. 
God's covenant generates our worship. Everybody say worship. And an experience of his presence. Everybody say presence. God's covenant generates our worship and an experience of his presence. presence. Exodus 24. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, that is the sons of Aaron, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all of the rules. Verse 4, and all the people, I'm sorry, and all the people answered with one voice and said, this is critical, key, listen to what Israel is agreeing to. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Remember those Ten Commandments? The people of Israel are saying, we agree to follow those words. Verse 4, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, that is the Ten Commandments, and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, again, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. What an experience, right? I mean, I know you guys like to come and sing songs for worship, but what if we just threw blood on everybody and we worship the Lord that way? Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the what? Covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua and Moses went up into the mountain of God. By the way, first mention of Joshua in this story. Verse 14, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Two questions that I want to give to you to process for yourself 
this morning and this week. Number one, is your relationship generating worship? Is your relationship generating worship? Exodus 24 is all about the covenant. And when I say the word covenant, I want you to think immediately the word relationship. Covenant equals what? Relationship. And for the people of Israel, Israel's covenant with the Lord generated worship. Or another way to put that, Israel's covenant generated sacrifice. In the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, the idea of worship is connected to sacrifice. It might seem the most crazy, odd, weird thing that Moses is throwing blood all over the place. (laughs) Because that's not in our context. But in the ancient world, and in particular in the Old Testament, a sacrifice was connected to worship. It just was. So this covenant, it's a chosen relationship. God chose Israel. Israel had to choose God in which the two parties make a binding promise with each other. So as you go back and you look at these first eight verses in Exodus 24, you see some things. In the context, it talks about an altar, how Moses built an altar, and it talks about pillars, and the 12 pillars represent who? The 12 tribes of Israel. The altar represents who? God. And so you have the two parties of the covenant, of this what? Covenant equals relationship. And on one side, you have the people of Israel, and they are representing their side with the 12 pillars. And on the other side, you have the altar, which represents the presence of God. And in between them is Moses, and he, in this point, is acting as a priest. He's mediating between God and the people of Israel. And he begins to read the book of the what? Covenant. And that book is comprised of how many commandments? 10. Because these are the covenant vows. These are the covenant stipulations where God says, listen, this is what I'm going to do for you, Israel, but Israel, you have to do this for me. And then the way that worship happened in the ancient world in the Old Testament is an animal was slaughtered. And more often than not, that animal represented life because in the blood is what? life. But it also represented this. It represented death. And here's what I mean by that. For an animal to be sacrificed, the people providing the sacrifice was saying this, I will become, we will become like this animal if we choose to not uphold our covenant. And so the people of Israel sacrifice this bull and Moses takes the blood and he throws it on the altar as a sacrifice to the Lord, a way for the people of Israel to worship God. And then he takes that blood and he pours it, sprinkles it, throws it on the people of Israel. And the whole point of this, again, is to say the blood of that animal is on them. 
that they would commit to worship the Lord, follow the Lord. And if they don't, they would become like that animal, cursed. The people of Israel offer a burnt offering that provided atonement and consecration, meaning they were going to be committed to God and God alone. And then there's a fellowship offering where after being committed to God, they celebrate their relationship with God. Now, as crazy as all of that sounds, the New Testament picks up Exodus 24. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. If there is a book in the New Testament that is Old Testament infused, it is the book of Hebrews. And it says this about Exodus 24. It says, therefore, not even the first covenant, that's the old covenant, what we're reading about, was inaugurated without what? Blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of what? There is no forgiveness of sins. See, in the Old Testament, there is a holy God and an unholy people. No one is like God. God is absolutely separate from all of his creation. So the only way for an unholy people to come into relationship or covenant with a holy God is their sins have to be cleansed. They have to be made right with God. That's the word atonement. That theological word, if you break it down, at one meant, meaning becoming one, being reconciled. So the way the people of Israel are reconciled to God or brought into relationship with God is there must be shedding of blood for their sins to be forgiven, for them to become holy. As God is holy. Now all of that, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, should begin to stir things up in your mind. Just as Israel's covenant generated sacrifice, our covenant too generates sacrifice. Hebrews 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. How does this come to be in the New Testament? The God of the universe leaves heaven and puts on flesh. His name is Jesus. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he comes to earth and he becomes incarnate. He becomes human. And he walks among us, but unlike Israel and unlike all of humanity, he's not unholy, but what? Holy. And he lives a perfect, sinless life, and yet he goes to the cross, a death by humiliation, a death that was put only for the worst of criminals, that they would be humiliated for their crime. And he dies a death. Not for himself, but for all of humanity. He sheds what? Blood. And the way that the scriptures describe it is that his death on the cross provides atonement. 
His blood, like the blood of goats, provides reconciliation. It provides relationship. It provides what? Covenant. But unlike the blood of goats and bulls and calves in the Old Testament, it does not need to be offered more than once. So Jesus died on the cross for our sins. They put him in a tomb. He was buried for three days. But unlike all of those other Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus did what? He came back to life. And he defeated sin, death, hell, and Satan, giving us life. Providing us a way to worship him. And worship our God. Because now our relationship, our covenant with God should generate sacrifice. Not the kind of sacrifice that is killed once and is dead forever. But the kind of sacrifice that is ongoing. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a what? Living, not dead, living sacrifice. How does he describe it? It is what? Holy and what? To God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, here's what I want you to get. Because if you're like me, you're reading Exodus 24 and you're thinking to yourself, what in the world does this have to do with me? Because I'm just telling you, I want you all to come back next week so I don't anticipate us throwing blood around. Right, even colored food, uh, uh, colored water. I don't want to do that either. Although that could be cool, but we're not going to do it. So, what has all this got to do with us? The reality is this: every single one of us are worshipers. We've all been created to worship. It's innate. It's built in. And if you don't believe that about yourself, just wait for the next cool thing that you like to come out and watch yourself respond to it. Right? I can't even keep up with like the next iWatch or the next iPad or the next iPhone or whatever those sorts of things are. Or maybe it's not a thing, but it's a person. Watch how you react to that person, whether it's a, a loved one or a celebrity or something. What's the thing that gets your attention and keeps your attention? And watch how you chase after that thing. Maybe it's an experience. See, the reality is, is that this matters to you and I because every single one of us, whether we believe it or not, or whether we worship God or not, are worshipers. And we're all worshiping something because we were created by our God to worship. But what we have to understand is that the covenant that God gives us through his son Jesus generates a different particular kind of worship, a different particular kind of sacrifice. We're no longer called to kill animals. Instead, our sacrifice is supposed to be living. It's supposed to be holy. It's supposed to be acceptable. So I want you to think about it like this. Just Take a moment, close your eyes, and I want you to think about the moment this morning when you woke up. 
And I want you to jog your memory from the moment that you woke up this morning to this moment right now. And I just want you to think about what are the things that you did this morning to prepare your heart and mind to worship the Lord. Here's what I have a feeling. My feeling, my gut is this. Many of us went through the motions this morning. (laughs) Maybe some of us woke up late. And there's been no preparation for us to be a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice today. And because you haven't prepared your heart and your mind, chances are you're not prepared and ready to worship the Lord like you should be. Think about Exodus 24. There had to be preparation, did there not? They had to gather the animals. They had to prepare the animals. They had to prepare the altar. They had to prepare the pillars. They had to prepare the book of the covenant. There was preparation. And so we don't miss the significance of worship in the New Testament. It's not just about you preparing your heart and mind for Sunday morning. But it's about what are you doing Monday through Saturday as well to prepare your heart and mind to see every single thing that you do as an act of worship to our God. Because everything that you do could quickly become something that you worship rather than seeing how everything that you do be an act of worship to God alone. The way that you talk, the kind of work ethic that you have, how you spend your time, how you treat your family, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your prayer life, your thought life. Every single one of these things is connected to your what? Worship. Because our worship is about the covenant that we have with God, which is our what? Our relationship with God. So the question that I have for you is this. Do you want him? The people of Israel had to make a conscious decision that they wanted the Lord. Moses read the entire book of the covenant before them and and the people of Israel said what? All that you have said, we will do. We will be obedient. Look, every morning that you wake up, you have to ask yourself, do I want him? Because then you have to begin to order your life in such a way that the Lord is the number one priority of your life. That worshiping the Lord in everything you do is the most important thing you will do. Do you want him? We're created to worship, but what's the point of worship? That leads to the second question. Is your worship placing you in the Lord's presence? Is your worship placing you in the Lord's presence? In verses 9 through 16, this is what we see. The Lord's presence manifested itself at the covenant meal. What do I mean? After the people of Israel make their covenant with God and blood is thrown everywhere, Moses is told to go up to the mountain. 
They're kind of like right in the middle of the mountain and Moses is told to go up to the mountain. But before he goes up to the mountain, there is a meal that is had. And chances are the meal that was had came from the animals that were sacrificed. And there at that meal, the covenant with God was ratified. And in fact, this carries over into Old Testament worship. Because many of the sacrifices that will be sacrificed in the tabernacle or the temple, the priests would then eat. It's one of the ways that their needs were provided for as a priest. So there is a meal on the mountain where the covenant that God and the people of Israel have made is ratified together. It happens in a meal. And at that meal, the text tells us that they see God. Now, this is a big deal. Because number one, we know from the Old Testament that God is what? Is he physical? Is he matter? No, he's spirit. So you can't see spirit. And then if you keep reading just a little bit further in the book of Exodus, Moses actually requests God to see him. He's, Moses says, I want to see you, God. And God tells Moses what? Listen, you can't see me. In fact, if you do see me, you'll die. So, oh, well, maybe I don't want to see you, God. So Moses, instead, God tells Moses, listen, hide your face in a rock and I'll pass by. And just by Moses seeing the back part of God, no longer could his face be open to the public. He had to like literally shield his face because he had seen the backside of God and it was like glowing with glory. So we see something very interesting here because it says that they beheld God, but did you catch what they saw of God? They didn't see God's face. They actually didn't even see God's like body or what could have appeared like a body. They saw his feet. Now, I just told you what, God is spirit. Does God have feet? No, he does not. But we have to have a way to be able to talk about these things, right? And, and if you see God, you have to say, well, I saw something. I'm not sure what I saw. It looked like a part of him, a, a, a piece of him, right? And so they saw his feet, and the way in which they knew it was his feet was it wasn't just the feet that they saw, but where God was walking had become like splendid gems, like the glory of Lord was right here in this one place and that place appeared different. And I'll remind you, they're on a mountain like rocks and dirt and sand. But all of a sudden, they see marvelous colors, gems, things glowing. It's as if they saw the presence of God that it was so much, it was so overwhelming. You ever looked up at the sun? By the way, don't do it. Right, You can't stare at the sun for all that long because when you begin to look at the sun and then you look back down, you see like nothing. And it's as if the people of Israel, Moses and the 70 elders that were with him, when they saw just a glimpse of who God was and they beheld God, it was too much and it was overwhelming for them. So the only way that they could describe it was to say, we saw his feet. Whatever happened, they saw something. It was an experience. They had been in his presence. And one of the most interesting things that happens 
in this story is how Mount Sinai, this mountain, foreshadows what to come. Remember I told you, put your finger in chapter 24 and just start reading about 25 and 26 and 27 and 28. And you read about the tabernacle and the priests and we get bogged down in that. And we're like, oh, this is so boring. I don't care what the dimensions are of the tabernacle or why the priest's garments have to have bells on them. Like, who cares, right? But I want you to notice something. In the tabernacle and in the temple, there were kind of three areas. There was the outer court where people could be, and then there was the inside of the tabernacle, what was called the holy place. And in the holy place, only the priests could go. But then inside that, there was the most holy place. It was where the Ark of the Covenant was, where only the high priest could go, and he could only go once a year on the Day of Atonement. And it, the reason was because it was where the presence of God was dwelling, where he was dwelling and sitting on the, the, the tent of, in the tent of meeting on the Ark of the Covenant. And I want you to go back, if you've got time this week, and I want you to read Exodus 24 again, and I want you to read about Mount Sinai. There are three levels to Mount Sinai. There's the base of the mountain, and at the base of the mountain, who was there? All of Israel. But if you go up a little bit further on Mount Sinai, there's a landing point there where it's not just Moses, but it's Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders, holy people. But who's able to go to the top of the mountain? Only Moses. Only he's able to go up to the top of the mountain. All of this sets us up for what's to come. And all of this is about the presence of of the Lord. One commentator describes it like this. He says, Sinai is not a reflection of the tabernacle, but the other way around. God meets with his people at Mount Sinai, and the tabernacle is a way of making that presence portable. So it's at the top of the mountain that the glory of the Lord is experienced. There's thunder and lightning and there's fire and all of that is a visual for the presence of God. Because when the Bible talks about God's glory, it talks about his presence. Now here's the thing. The Lord's presence was manifested at the covenant meal. The Lord's presence for us is manifested at the Lord's table. If you've ever read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, Eating is very important. And in the New Testament, there is a meal that supersedes all of their meals. But all of it begins in the very beginning of the gospel. John chapter 1, verse 14, and is so important for us to understand. And the Word became flesh. Who's the Word? Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his what? Hmm. Who else has glory in the Old Testament? God. And they were barely able to see that glory. And yet here, John tells us that when Jesus came to earth and he put on flesh, when we looked at Jesus, we saw his glory. And by the way, where was that glory from? Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
So when we read about Jesus and we read about the meal that he had with his disciples, we have to keep in mind that the glory of God was encased in flesh. And when people saw Jesus, they didn't just see a man, they saw the glory of God. So Jesus is having this last supper with his disciples. This last supper was a unique event because it came around every year. I know, it's like, wait, wait, it's a last supper. How could it come around every year? Because it was a Passover meal. And at the Passover, Jews would get together and they would remember and they would celebrate God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. But at this Passover meal, something is different. At this Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples that we know as the Last Supper, he changes, he reinterprets what the elements are. So every Passover meal would have had many things, including wine and unleavened bread. And that wine and unleavened bread meant something for the Israelites, but Jesus says this, that unleavened bread is what? My body, broken for you. This cup of wine is what? My blood shed for you. And Jesus begins to reinterpret what all of this means around the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus to say, this is the point of this meal. This is the point of me going to the cross and dying for your sins and you taking this meal in the same way that the covenant in Exodus 24 is ratified around a meal The covenant that Jesus makes with his church is ratified at this meal. And so when we take this meal, we talk about this every time we take communion, the significance of communion. I just want to remind you briefly what we do when we take communion. Number one, we thank God for both his common and saving grace. One of the ways, maybe you grew up in the Roman Catholic Church or a different tradition that communion is described, it's described as the Eucharist. That's a Greek word, eucharisto, which means thanks or to give thanks. So part of what we do when we take communion is we are reminded of God's common grace in providing us bread and wine. And at the same time, we are reminded of his saving grace in sending his son Jesus to die for our sins. And so we thank God for his grace. Number two, we remember the death of Jesus upon the cross for our sins. Jesus himself said this. He died. His body was broken. And in breaking for us, he shed blood for us. And he told us that every time we take the bread, every time we take the cup, we are to do what? Remember. Number three, we draw near to Jesus by the Holy Spirit as he draws near to us. The presence of God is near us when we take communion. This is a very controversial issue in the church. I get that. When you are in the Roman Catholic Church and you take the bread and the wine, you are eating the literal body and blood of Jesus. In other traditions, you're eating the bread and the wine, but Jesus is in there somehow. We're not saying that, but here's what we are saying. If the presence of God, if the Holy Spirit is in us, then he is in us as we take these elements. And so Jesus is very much present when we take the bread that represents his body and the juice and the wine that represents his blood. He's just spiritually present and spiritually near. Number four, we maintain the unity of the church by drawing near to one another. 
that we talk about in, in the New Testament talks about a common bread and a common cup. Part of that tradition is that just as there's one loaf and one cup, there is one body. And lastly, we anticipate Jesus' return and coming kingdom. Jesus says that you will do this until I return. And he talks about celebrating this meal in heaven, in his presence. This is what we do when we take communion, when we remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. I think all of this is a challenge for us to take the moment of communion very serious. Now, it's not to say that it shouldn't be a celebration. I don't know about you, but when I eat, I also like to have a good time. And so there's something to be said about a moment being serious, but also at the same time, a moment being joyous. That you can have both of those at the same time. That the moment is serious or the meal is serious, but it's also joyous. And I think that's the way that we should approach communion when we take it. A serious moment, but at the same time, a joyous moment. And it is in that It's when we are worshiping the Lord that we're placed in his presence. So here's my question for you. It's not just do you you want him, but number two, are you expectant? Are you expectant of his presence? I started to think about that this morning and just thinking about this because I'll be honest with you. I'll kind of show you my cards a little bit. I live in my head a lot. I'm not much of a feeler. That's something I've had to work on. I'm not much of a doer. I am a thinker. I think a lot. I can't turn my brain off. I'm always thinking. And one of the challenges, I think, depending on kind of your tradition or where you came from in worship is you're like, listen, I mean, yeah, I want to be in his presence and I want to be expected and I want to think about all of these things and I want there to be a supernatural experience, but I don't want to force it. I don't want to manufacture his presence. And I think that's a, that's a, a valid concern. That, that we shouldn't want to fake it. Like if you just keep raising your hand in worship, God's just going to show up. Like we can manipulate God, right? That's not true. But I do think that there is something to be said for asking ourselves the question of whether or not we want him. And if we want him, are we expectant? And here's how I thought about it. In my mind... A great day with my wife is staying in my pajamas and sitting on my couch and watching television. That's romantic. I have this suspicion that my wife strongly disagrees with that. So when we're planning a date... Right, I've got to get out of my like shorts and t-shirt and dress kind of nice. It might not hurt to shave, to shower, to do something with my hair. Perhaps I should even gather reservations somewhere. I mean, we could have dinner around our dinner table, 
But there's something about going somewhere nice and intimate. Maybe it's candle lit and the food is like a notch above what we would normally make at home. And then because we're in this setting, the conversation might be a little bit different. We might be more intentional with one another. We might be having a conversation that's important to both of us, that's building our, our, our relationship and growing our love for one another. Now, you could make the argument that all we're doing is manipulating one another. Right? All we did, we, we changed the setting. We changed the environment. And all of a sudden, there's supposed to be more romance. But if you're a romantic person, I have a feeling you're going to argue that that's not manipulation, that's intentionality. And so my challenge to us as we think about Exodus 24 and we think about worship and we think about the presence of God is that we would simply think about intentionality. Some of us, we don't want to raise a hand or we're thinking about what we've got to do next or we're thinking about, well, I'm worshiping in my heart. Why do I need to worship outwardly? And listen, I get you. I, I empathize with you. But I think that there's something to be said with getting outside of yourself a bit and being intentional in your worship to say, how can I in this moment be in the presence of the Lord because I know he's here and express my worship and devotion to him because he alone deserves it. Because he alone deserves for me to give him his best. Because for he alone deserves for me to lift up a hand and not just in my heart tell him that I love him, but display my love. I think that's what Exodus 24 is teaching us. Because we were created for worship. And listen, each and every one of us, that presence piece is about relationship. That's what it is. Each one of us, whether you're close to God or far from God, whether you know God or you're searching, you were created for the presence of God. You were created to be in relationship with him. Do you want him? And are you expectant? Let's pray together. Father, we love you. And we thank you that you love us. That you sought us out first. That you gave your son first. That you wanted a relationship first. We thank you for your presence. God, that you want us to be near you. You want us to be in relationship. And we thank you that the worship of you puts us there. God, stir our hearts for you. May the thing that we want above all other things be you. We love you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.
Thank you for joining the Vintage Church NOLA podcast. If you're enjoying this content, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you next week.